Wow, what a reading. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. We ask that you have mercy on us tonight to hear your warning to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You probably remember in 2011 the tsunami that devastated the east coast of Japan. The waves were up to 40 metres high and they travelled 10 kilometres inland, leaving 20,000 people dead. You mightn't know, but along the hillsides on the coast of Japan are dotted all these stone markers. They're 600 years old. And on the ancient markers, there, were, there are words written on them. They were a warning from people in the past saying, don't build below these lines because tsunamis had reached these levels in the past. So in one town, Aniyoshi, one stone marker reads, high dwellings are the peace and harmony of our descendants. Remember the calamity of the great tsunamis. Do not build any homes below this point. And another one in another town called Kesenumi says, always be prepared for the unexpected tsunamis. Choose life over your possessions and valuables. So I start the sermon this way to point out how important it is to heed the warnings of the past. This evening, the words from the prophet Joel are God's warning to us. His judgment is not a theological abstraction. His warnings come from his divine love. We're to hear his warning and rush to safety. The people of Anayoshi heeded the warning and in 2011 they were saved from the water. So we're starting a a four-week series in the book of Joel. It's an intimidating book, as you felt and heard just in the reading. It's one of 12 minor prophets. And these prophets aren't called minor because their message is insignificant. They're called minor because their books are shorter than some of the other prophets in the Old Testament. And one thing you'll have noticed is prophet Joel and many of the minor prophets, they're raw. They had no PR consultant. They smash through sentimentality. The message of these prophets is too important to pretty up. Regarding the prophet Joel, uh, we know very little. Uh, All we know is from verse 1, really, that he's the son of Pethuel. We don't know exactly when he wrote the book or to whom he wrote the book. But his purpose is very clear. The book of Joel's purpose is to warn the Israelites so that they rend their hearts. Rend means to tear. So that they tear their hearts and return to the Lord their God. That's the purpose of Joel. It's a warning so that they might tear their hearts up in repentance to God. Okay, so let's jump in. God's wake-up call. Start at verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children 
and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten, what the great locusts have eaten or left, the young locusts have eaten, what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. It's complete devastation. We've been dropped into a scene of complete and utter devastation. In previous times, the locusts swamped the people of Egypt. It was one of the ten plagues. But now the locusts have swamped God's people. I've got a description of a locust plague by someone who experienced one in Jerusalem in 1915. He describes a plague like this. The locusts appeared at that time in flights lasting for hours, like clouds from the northeast and south from the, from the 22nd to the 27th of March. At the end of May and the beginning of June, the first hatching of eggs deposited by them in the ground appeared as wingless larvae that wander about and eat up everything they encounter. encounter. Wild growth, grain, the leaves of fig trees, vines, even olive trees. Everything disappears where they move along. They cover the walls of houses. They penetrate the insides through doors and windows. And following a six-fold shedding, the wings appear after approximately two months. And then 20, 20 days after that, they fly into invading other regions. For an agrarian society, a society totally dependent on crops and farms, a plague was a national disaster. It's, it's something equivalent for us like a economic crash, something like the global financial crisis of 2008. And after the description of the locust plague in verse 4, verses 5 to 14 describes in more depth the carnage and the description is interspersed by warnings. Joel warning the people to respond to the tragedy. So verse 5, the warning, wake up you drunkards and weep, wail all you drinkers of wine. And then that's followed by a description, a description of the vines and the fig trees being totally laid bare. Joel says their branches were white. And then verse 11, there's another warning, despair you farmers, wail you vine growers, followed by a description where the sweeter fruits, the, the fruits that bring life, the pomegranate, the, the palms, the figs, the apples, descriptions of them drying up. And then the prophet concludes, surely the people's joy is withered away. But the call to mourn in verse 8 is most fascinating. I won't go into it, but the way verses 5 to 14 is structured mean that verses 8 and 9 are the sort of the key verses of the section, verses 5 to 14. Verses 8 and 9 are the key verses of this section, and they read this, like this. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. And then notice in verse 9, Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. Now these details aren't just more examples of what the locusts have done. These details, the grain offerings and the drink offerings being cut off from the house of God, they were evidence that because the people of Israel had rejected their covenant with God, the Mosaic covenant, their relationship with God had been cut off. The offerings, the grain offerings and the drink offerings, they were signs for the people of Israel that they had a vital relationship with their God. But because of the locust plague, they were forced to cease. And for the people of God, this was the worst thing imaginable. 
cut off from their creator, their redeemer, their provider. Now, a really important sidebar. Does the book of Joel apply to any natural disasters? So, is the New South Wales drought, for instance, evidence that God has rejected us? No. uh, The book of Joel does not apply, at least directly, to any natural disasters like the New South Wales drought. I know this because God had made a special covenant with Israel and not with Australia. So in Deuteronomy chapter 28, at the end of Moses having described the covenant they had, they had promised they would keep, at the end of that description by Moses in Deuteronomy 28, God says to Israel, If you love me, the vines and the figs will grow. You'll have more than enough. But if you reject me, the fig tree will be withered, the vines will not produce fruit, and in particular, verse 38 of chapter 28 in Deuteronomy God will send locusts to destroy the land. The locusts were a sign that the people of Israel had been unfaithful to their God. They'd broken the covenant. And because there's no such covenant established with Australia, we can't make direct links between natural disasters and God's rejection, as the prophet did for Israel. So to be sure, natural disasters don't mean God's rejection, but they do play another really important role. When life's going well, it's so easy to forget that we live in a world of pain, of brokenness, a world that just isn't right. It's so easy to persuade ourselves that nothing's wrong with us or the world when things are going well. But Joel is saying to the people of Israel, wake up, there's much wrong with the world. Not only wrong with the world, there's much wrong with us. And this world is under God's judgment. It's awaiting God's judgment. And disasters, personal or otherwise, make the reality of the world's brokenness and God's judgment much harder to ignore. Reflecting on the death of his wife... C.S. Lewis wrote these words. They're pretty dense, so follow along. The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well. Now, error and sin both have this property, that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. They are masked evil. Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. When all seems well, we can rest contentedly in our sins. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is a megaphone to rouse our deaf world. When things are going well, it's so easy to forget we're living in a world that's awaiting judgment. And Natural disasters are God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But let's continue. For Israel, it's going to get worse. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Follow along if you've got it there with you, just because there's a lot to get through. Blow the trumpet in Zion. 
Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. The day of the Lord, a day of darkness and gloom, clouds and blackness. It sort of feels like at this point that we've entered the scene of or the, the set of Armageddon with Bruce Willis. Maybe I should be, you know, ringing a bell and wearing a sandwich sort of sign saying the end of the world is nigh. Maybe. But the day of the Lord in the Bible isn't only about judgment. judgment. It's also crucially about deliverance. In other words, the day of the Lord is in the end good news. In the Bible, the day of the Lord refers both to a specific moment in history and also to the, a final moment, sort of at the end of history, when God dramatically intervenes to stop injustice. It always mean, means judgment for some and deliverance for others. Now, a classic example of this is the escape of God's people through the Red Sea in the Exodus. On that day, God turns Pharaoh's evil against him and he's swallowed up by death, but God delivers the Israelites. The day of the Lord is bad news for some, but it's good news for others. It was bad news for Egypt, a a nation obsessed with power and at the expense of the the, uh, oppressed, but it was good news for the oppressed Israelites. But the tragedy of the situation in the book of Joel is how the tables have turned. Chapter 2, verse 1. A trumpet sounds. Now that's a sign that enemy troops are coming. But they're coming upon Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's God's city. And you'll notice, it's the Lord, it's God himself coming upon his own city and his own people. The tragedy is, by Joel's time, God's very own people had become as corrupt as Egypt had been. Now, the book of Joel isn't specific about what exactly the Israelites had done, but you can assume the priests, they must have only been in it for themselves. The leaders of the nation were probably all about getting rich at the expense of their people, and the entire nation had gone along. Far from being God's covenant people, they had become corrupt as any other nation that had gone before. God shows no favoritism. The locusts in chapter 1 were the warning, the wake-up call. The future day of the Lord is the real event that they need to wake up to. From verse 3, the language of the locust cranks up a level or 10. It's not just talking about a past locust plague at this point, but something bigger in the future. So verse 6, at the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. Verse 10, before them, the earth shakes, the heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. It's as if the locusts have been transformed into the world's most destructive army. The nation is overwhelmed. But notice verse 11. Who is at the head of this army? Verse 11, the Lord thunders at the head of the army. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? 
Let me guess. Maybe some of you are thinking, there's no better way to spend an easy Sunday evening than hearing about the fire and thunder of the day of the Lord. I'd like to convince you in the next minute or two that it's good you're here if you're not already convinced. First, this talk of the future day of the Lord is affirming that there will be final justice. There will be final justice. And as I, as I said a, a minute ago, that's good news. We live in a world that cries out for justice. It's the reason why the banks are undergoing the Royal Commission. It's the reason why aged care will probably undergo a Royal Commission. When there's public outrage at cheating or corruption or sexual assault, it's an expression of our desire for justice. The day of the Lord is God's promise that justice will come. And it's going to be perfect justice done by one who's worthy and able to do it. But you may have noticed in general and in the media, in, on social media, we're really good at pointing the finger and saying corruption and sin and evil, well, they're in that person, they're in that organization, but not necessarily in ourselves. But the scriptures, as you all probably know, don't let us off the hook that easily. The scriptures say that outside of Christ, we're all made of the same stuff. With a nature that's bent towards sin and evil. Which leads me to the next point. Another reason why it's good you're here, not only promises that final justice will come, and that's a relief. But also, uh, tonight is like, or hearing about God's judgment, is like jumping into a freezing ocean in winter that wakes you up to life. I've done it four times this winter, and it did wake me up to life. I lasted about four seconds. Let the news of God's justice tonight wake you up. A past American senator, Daniel Webster, if you're into these things, he's from the 18th century, is known to have said these words, the greatest thought that has ever entered my mind is that one day I will have to stand before a holy God and give an account of my life. Now, I'm assuming he said that because the thought of standing before a holy God gives him a sense of clarity, a clarity of mind, and the grounds of a life lived with a sense of gravity, that how we live matters. So although hearing about the day of the Lord and God's judgment isn't easy, let it wake you up like jumping in the ocean. Let it, let it wake you up. Let it jolt you from complacency, from half-hearted love of God. For the Israelites, they were the God's very own people. They'd become complacent. They made their relationship with God superficial. They were just going through the motions. And we can't go through this passage tonight in Joel and not ask some questions of ourselves. Are there signs of complacency or lukewarm faith in your life? I've got a couple of questions. Do you attend church only because it's routine or because you need to? You need the encouragement of other believers. You need to hear the word of life from the scriptures. You need to sing to have your heart warmed up to the love of God. Do you come to church only because it's routine 
or because you need to? Uh, Do you play it safe in your faith, half aware that God is worthy of your life, but also wanting to control it at least a little bit on your own? Do you play it safe in your faith? And does your Christian faith regularly lead you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do? Does your faith lead you to do things that require God to come through, to provide you help to do what you're going to do? These are questions to help assess whether we need to be jolted out of complacency. And I feel the questions as much as you. And I know as well that there are many people here who who do things that they wouldn't otherwise do if they didn't have faith in Christ. So I hope some of you are encouraged as well by, by those questions. But this is a moment of self-examination. These words come from the mouth of Jesus in Revelation 3, speaking of one of the churches at the beginning of Revelation. He says to the church, Jesus, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. They're really hard words, but we're not finished yet. So far this evening, it's been pretty heavy. We've looked at the book of Joel and we've seen that the initial locust plague was God's wake-up call to Israel. They want to wake up to the day of the Lord in chapter 2. But the question remains, if God is at the head of the army in 2.11, what hope was there for Israel? If God's at the head of the army, what hope was there for Israel? I want to read five words from chapter 1, verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. I think these are key words. The prophet says, To you, Lord, I call. Five words. To you, Lord, I call. Even though God is against them in their sin and corruption, that doesn't change the fact that there's only one who can help. And that's God himself. To you, Lord, I call. Now, in your minds, I want to take you forward to the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. You all know it probably really well. Um, The son does the unthinkable, and he asks his father for his share of the inheritance. It's practically the son saying to his father, I don't want you, I want your stuff. And the father gives him his stuff. And the son goes off. He goes off into the far country, and he squanders his father's wealth on wild living, on partying, on prostitutes. But when he's got nothing left, when he's hit rock bottom, he knew he only had one hope. His father, the one he'd offended, was his only hope. It's like that for the Israelites. The one who had given them all things, the one who had called them into existence as a people, the one who had sustained them in the desert, the one who had given them his word, the one they'd forgotten, still, he's the one, the only one who can help. At the moment, the the preachers um, on the preaching roster are reading a book together. And in the book that we're reading together, it says these words. If you go to a jewelry jewelry shop to buy a ring, 
The jeweler may spread out on the counter a black satin cloth on which to display each ring. Against the black, the ring sparkles. But it would be a depressing spectacle if the jeweler laid out black cloth after black cloth without ever producing a ring for you to to admire. Now this evening's passage is the black satin cloth. We need to hear it because without the black satin cloth, we won't understand the, the riches of God's grace. Um, in the following weeks, Terry and Morris will bring out the, the ring to go onto the black satin cloth. But this evening, I, I can't help but begin. In the story of the prodigal son, Jesus uh, tells us that story because God is like the father who runs to meet his wayward son. We all know that the the son did return to his father and when the father saw him in the distance, he doesn't wait for his son to to beg and grovel. He runs out to meet his son and Jesus tells it to say this is what God's like. And God's character doesn't change and his character in the book of Joel is the same. In 2.13, in next week's passage... We hear these words describing God's character. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. So just like the father met his son, so too God is ready to meet anyone who wakes up to his warnings. His character is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love. And how gracious and compassionate is this God? Well, we see his grace in action when God in the Son is stripped, he's beaten, he's nailed to a cross. God the Son is consumed on the cross like the land was in the book of Joel. But not for his own sin or his own corruption. No, he's God the Son. He was a a blemishless lamb. But for our own half-heartedness in loving God, our own hypocrisy in loving God, for all the times we've hurt others, that's why Jesus died on the cross. And because of his compassion and love, God has provided a safe place for us And that's in the Son. God the Son has taken upon himself the anger the Father has against sin and evil. And thank God he does get angry at sin and evil. Being found in the Son is where we're safe from judgment. It's where God's judgment on sin and evil has passed through. From the New Testament, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Our refuge is in the Son. And being found in the Son isn't just safe. It's where we're embraced. It's like our home. It's where we belong. It's where we're welcomed and embraced by the Father like the prodigal. We're children of God. And God loves his children. So if you're not a believer here tonight, you need to hear this. Jesus is our only refuge from judgment. 
come to the Father through him, you will be warmly welcomed. The believer needs to hear this. We need to put away complacency and half-heartedness in our love for God and others. It's not how life is lived in the sun. It's not how God's children live. We need to let God's love for us, that's sort of seen on the cross, we need to let that lead us to greater love for God. So you might remember the people of the Japanese town, Anayoshi, they heeded the warning. And in 2011, they were saved. They didn't build below the line. How will you respond? How will we respond to the warning of the prophet Joel this evening? Chapter 2.13 Tear your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious in your acceptance and embracing of us. Through your son Jesus, you have washed us clean. We are your children. Help us live lives that that respond appropriately to your love for us in Jesus. Help us love you with all our hearts, our minds, our wills in return and love others as ourselves. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.